You're listening to The Tech Talk Show. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, My name is Sue Nelson and this is The Tech Talk Show. For the next hour, we're going to be talking about all things tech or mostly tech. We might wander off the subject occasionally, which we do. I'm joined by my fellow presenter, Paul Armstrong, author of Disruptive Technologies, who's looking very happy and energetic today. Hello. You're welcome. How's it going? <laughs> good, good, good. Um, and you were you were back uh, for weeks now, haven't you, from, from Las Vegas? You've recovered from that sufficiently? You've got jet lag anymore? No, all good. Yeah. Okay. That's why I'm peppy. Obviously. Yeah, so obviously, obviously. Yeah. We are joined by two guests today, Alistair Barrow of Generic Robotics and Dan Bladen of Chargeify. Um, and I, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to this because it means I'm going to learn lots of things that I didn't probably know, um, particularly in the area of robotics. And I know when you were over in uh, Las Vegas at that, what's it called, that show? Was CES, it was, Consumer Electronics Show. Which is massive. Huge. Um, robotics was one of the things that was quite prevalent, wasn't it? Oh, it was, well, they, it was everywhere. There were uh, kitchens of the future, which were, you know, arms that, you know, cooked and that sort of stuff. You had um, drivers, obviously. Um, and um, there was an interesting one, which was kind of like a carer of the future. A so carer. it could, yeah, so basically it looked like a big old scoop. Uh, and <laughs> if, if you, so the floor was, um, what's the word, covered in electrodes, but you didn't see them. It was just underneath carpet. And if someone fell over, you would obviously have to a computer a big red area. And if it stayed a red area, for longer than 30 seconds the robot would like zoop along and then scoop you up pick you up yeah so it's a bit like pick a mix for humans that's quite good if you go out drinking isn't it yeah i mean well we're getting an insight into your life again but yeah it's um it was it was strangely awesome to see but then also going oh i've got to have that there all the time you know yeah they fall down and you're just like whack them in a home don't say that. It's not correct. No, it's not. No, I'll be I trying to have everybody that. Equally. We're trying to have that conversation with my mother, but she's not having it. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Anyway, moving moving um, quickly on. Swiftly so, on, yeah. um, Alistair, Alistair uh, Barrow of Generate Robots. Now, I know that actually part of what you do is uh, you're an expert. Well, I use that word. <laughs> an expert in the field of haptics. Now. We've all got this little thing um, called haptics on our phone, haven't we? Yes. You're allowed to adjust. And when I first got my phone, I went, well, what is haptics? I don't know. I think I do know now. But would you like to, to just explain what haptics is, please? So haptics is, in simple terms, our sense of touch. But it's a lot, lot more than that. So um, I'd like to start off by really highlighting what the sense of touch gives us in our daily lives. And so simple examples, if you imagine waking up from your long flight, you're a bit jet lagged, what you really fancy is a nice, really hot, powerful shower. So you wander into the shower, turn it on, full blast, put the heat up. It's really nice. Now do that without the sense of touch. You can't feel anything. You have to turn around to see, even see if the water's actually pointed in the right direction. Um, you're playing with your pen there. Um, the uh, <laughs> listeners can't see it, but uh, but you are. If you didn't have the sense of touch, you couldn't look at me and do that at the same time. The pen would just fall from your hands. So Fair. constantly, yeah. everyone here in the room at the moment is really actively processing the sense of touch constantly. And so it's really integral to everything we do, everything we do in the real world, that is. And is it because it, because it is so integral, we don't appreciate it? But because... It is just part of what we do, and therefore we don't really think of it. When we do think about the other senses, don't we? 
you know, hearing, seeing, and that sort of stuff. We don't really think about, you know, touch much, do we? Absolutely. Academics um, sometimes refer to their sense of touch as the forgotten sense. And so it's completely ubiquitous because life without it would be almost unimaginable. And so sort of lots of my favorite sort of statistics is the first sense to develop in the womb. Um, It's uh, incredibly detrimental if you lose it. So people don't necessarily realize, but leprosy actually is a deficiency in the sense of touch. And so it's not actually your limbs falling off. It's your sense of touch diminishes to the point where you can't tell when you uh, have banged your arm, got a cut, you don't attend to it. And so that means you're more and more likely to allow um, sort of damage to occur or fester or continue. And it's that point that you start to lose, um, you know, sort of your extremities and things. And so what you're saying there then is, is touch is a way of you um understanding if you've hurt yourself or or, or you know if something's hot or cold or, or without that uh, uh you know i suppose in in health terms we, we literally go downhill because we we can't tell when something's wrong uh, in essence it's our connection to the physical world so sight um doesn't really tell you much about the physical world physical properties sound doesn't really tell you much about the physical world haptics is the only two-way connection we have and so and that's actually sort of how I would lead on to describe haptics. So the sense of touch is our ability to detect physical stimulus. Haptics is when it becomes two-way. So when you uh, rub your hands over a flat surface, the receptors in your fingers are uh, picking up vibration. They're sending that to your head. But you wouldn't necessarily realize that it doesn't matter how fast you run your hands over a surface, the texture feels the same but the frequency of vibration coming up into your brain is actually vastly different. Mm-hmm. And it's this closed loop between how we actively explore the world and the the senses, sensations coming back that makes haptics. It's, it's sometimes called active touch, but haptics and active touch are sort of kind of um, uh, interchangeable. But it's the difference between using a mouse. You can feel the mouse. You can feel um, moving it around, that sort of thing. So you've got proprioception, which is this knowledge of where your hand is in space. But unless there is a feedback loop that relates actions within the computer, within the simulation, coming back to give you some kind of feedback, that's not haptics. That's just sort of passive touch. Okay. Now, now Dan, I know um, you've got three children, Mm. young children, which is why you're a little bit bleary-eyed. I'm good. The thing you notice when you have when you have very, very young children is they connect with the world through touching, Mm. don't they? Yeah, particularly my two-year-old son. Yeah, <laughs> because they that that's the that's the only way in which they can communicate often or actually understand the world to start with. Yeah, it can be very physical, very very different. Um, having my first child as a daughter as, as a girl, and so very very different having a son who's very very physical. Um, loves to play with train tracks, marble runs, um, but really loves to to wrestle. And so um, he's also super cuddly as well. So um, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, perceiving touching, love through yeah. um, through touch. And the other thing I found when my children were young is, is is actually picking things up and then the next thing is, well, I don't actually understand this, so I'm going to put this in my mouth. And actually, mm. I think that's another way of, of, of touching and feeling and experiencing. Um, well, it's the density of receptors in the lips. So mm. it's incredibly fine um, response around the lips. And so it's sort of a natural uh, first uh, investigation to sort of start experiencing the bits of the body that are giving the most um, intense experience. Mm. I mean, I remember my daughter going and running it in a field and whatever, and um, you know, she's got something in her mouth, thinking, "Oh God, what's she got in her mouth again?" You know, because mm. she, so that's how she's experienced <laughs> the world. So, I put my fingers in her mouth. It was just a whole pile of rabbit droppings. Oh, that was probably. <laughs> 
but we haven't gone there yet. No, but it's because they're just they're just that's the way they're trying to make sense of the world, and they just have no discrimination about it, do they? <laughs> <laughs> You're anyway. getting a call tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just, but that, that's how they're trying to, you know, make sense of stuff. Just thought I'd let you have that one. I love the anyway, sharing. Yeah. <laughs> going back to, um, so haptics is, <clears throat> is now a, a, an evolving field, isn't it, in mm. terms of technology? One that we probably have left for a little while, I think. Um, and we've got lots of voice activation. But actually, for me, some of the most exciting things that are happening are not through voice activation. We've had some amazing people on the programme talking about um, artificial, artificial intelligence and chatbots and things. But I think haptics is much more interesting and has a much wider application for a wider part of society, I think. Do you agree with that? I think it's very inclusive. Mm. So I see technology generally as the great enabler. Um, people understand within VR, for example, doesn't matter if you're able-bodied or um, otherwise, you've got a level playing field to interact in, in a virtual environment. The sense of touch is so ubiquitous that um, except for a very unfortunate minority, um, it's something that everyone has. But it also crosses a lot of different boundaries. So being able to hold a loved one's hand sort of in the last moments of life and, and the transfer of sort of information taking place at a really critical moment just with the squeeze of a hand is it, it's sort of kind of, you can't really quantify the data being transferred, but it's still very, very powerful. Um, and so we associate a lot of... Um, knowledge transfer, emotional transfer, all sorts of different things going on with the sense of touch. And it's not obvious that it's absent from our digital world, um, but it's patently is when you start to have a think about it. Yeah, and I think um, I think if you if you end up being on your own for whatever reason, I think it's the, f it's the physical presence of somebody or touching that is the thing that you miss, I, I, w I would imagine. So, you know, technology is great and you can talk to Alexa, well, well, let's say maybe in 10 years' time, you might be able to have a conversation. But it's really important for human beings to touch each other, isn't it? And I'm not saying that in a ridiculous sexual sense. I mean, just... Yeah. <laughs> With just, limits, yeah. Yeah, no, but just to connect, you know, even if you put your you know, your hand on somebody's shoulder or, or whatever, it, it feels natural just to try and connect to somebody. And if you're on your own, I think that's what people miss. I think so. I think that's absolutely huge. Um, but it leads to, well, at least loads of really interesting things as far as I'm concerned, but this is my bandwagon. Um, but uh, there's, there's a couple of there's a, there's a sort of a couple of examples that highlight exactly that. And so um, there's something uh, actually there's something called the, the Midas touch experiments. Have you ever come across those? Mm, I don't think I have. So um, if you are, for example, a, a waitress in uh, in a restaurant, if they touch their customer, male or female, on the hand or the arm as they're giving them uh, the bill, the customer will consistently more, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's that sort of unconscious link to the sense of touch. So mm -hmm. literally, just touching someone can make them feel reassured, can make them feel more well disposed. Um, and, and this is completely different from somebody being, you know, pervy or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we're saying here is just—it's not. But, but, Always takes but it. Paul, but Paul, but <laughs> Paul, every show. But Paul, show. I just want to make that distinction. You know, it—you it, know—and there's some real issues at the moment. Yeah. You know, this mm -hmm. male-female and the thing going on and whatever. But but just. Just gently, briefly touching someone in a really friendly way is 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 perfectly acceptable and okay. It's the way that you do it, isn't it? And how long you do it for, and your intentions. Well, there was some data as well, wasn't there, from um, some NBA data around um, 
the amount of times coaches touched their players. And it was found that um, there was a huge correlation between the number of times coaches and teammates would high five each other, slap each other on the back and, and performance. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, so that's the sort of thing we're talking about, isn't it? You know, not not using that in a really horrible way, but actually just just connecting with somebody. It's just because we're polarized with the word touch at the moment. I know. That's all. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Mm. it's difficult, but it, it's it's quite interesting mm. from the point of view of um, what is happening right now. So you've got things like deep fakes going on, which is obviously yeah. a really big uh, big issue and something which is is not going to go away. Um, but if you start to look at the sense of touch, could you ever really record? the sense of touch in a meaningful way. So you could you can take an image of someone and you can look and look at it as many times as you like. You can make a sound recording of saying hello um, and uh, someone could listen back to that over and over again. But if you recorded a caress or a touch and you played it back and back again, mm. would that just be weird and creepy? Um, could, could you ever have a recorded interactional experience? And I think the key is the word interaction. Mm. And so could you meaningfully fake two-way contact, two-way physical contact? Um, and I think as we start to add that element into interaction online, um, there is, yes, the potential for other ways to exploit it in in sort of more, more dark ways. But there's also the potential to use it in a way which either validates um, the experience and so either making it seem more real, seem more connected or just actually validate it from almost from a security point of view. Mm. Because you get into the area now of where you either have, to, if, if what you're saying is the two-way uh, interaction, you get into either having to wear something, um, having something uh, inserted in various orifices, uh, and you get the whole wonderful world of teledildonics and that sort of stuff, where you have a really interesting sort of like future of sex, future of um, connection and that sort of stuff, which is working in different areas of the world for different people for different reasons, you know, can't always be together and that sort of stuff. But you are starting to see technology bridge some of these gaps, whether it's, um, I forget their name and we won't, there are other products available, but um, the Alexa camera, that little one, I can't remember what they call it, Alexa Show, show. is it Show? Yeah, Alexa show, where you've got that sort of like instant, oh, we're just dropping in, you know, and that sort of stuff. And they're trying desperately to like make these things part of our lives. And they are, a lot of them are missing haptics. Haptics to most people is vibration, right? You know, as you said earlier. But I think it goes a lot deeper than that or has to with technology in order for it to not appear creepy, weird, or just for Japanese markets, you know, and that sort of thing, which is usually <laughs> sometimes where people um, put this sort of stuff. Mm. So tell me a bit more about like where, what you're doing now and what you're, where you think it's going to go in the future. Well, we're split across um, sort of platform and product. So the platforms we're creating enable the quick and easy generation and addition of the sense of touch into mainly simulation VR, that kind of thing. We then use that to develop products in the clinical training space. And so we're sort of kind of, we're a little bit a little bit split across those two areas. The clinical training one is really exciting at the moment. So it's, it's, it's a really simple one to explain. Unsurprisingly, um, you would want to know that a surgeon operating on you is experienced, has done it mm -hmm. a thousand times, really knows what they're doing, has seen every kind of corner case there is. Um, unsurprisingly, uh, everyone has a first time. And so we've got lots of fantastic quotes. Can you quotes. imagine that, turning up the hospital? And you don't know this, but this guy's never done it before. It's yeah. the first time. And you're the, you're the guinea pig, you know. You're, you're, you're the first time they've ever operated on somebody. But that fear only comes from if you know. If you know, yeah, exactly. which of course you don't know. Exactly. Um, and I'm not saying the training isn't great, obviously, but 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 there is going to be that first time, isn't there? Yeah. Well, tra training is really hard. And actually, um, we have a, 
a bank of fantastic quotes from orthopedic registrars talking about their their first time um, or first few times in the operating theatre. And, and some of them are just quite unfortunate. Mm. <laughs> that sort of, um, oh, I can't please. really rem- remember them on. I didn't place no. my landing. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I mean. Don't tell me, please. Like sort please of, don't tell me. Things like, so I, wish, I, I wish they'd just stay and take us through it start to finish. By they, they mean the consultants. Obviously, mm. the consultants just gone off. Like it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, you know, sometimes I know what I'm doing. Sometimes I don't. Um, and it's um, it's it's very interesting because you don't have the resources to have everyone's hand held all the time. Mm. And so there is a point where you're sort of let loose, as it were. Um, and it's this idea of sort of see one, do one, teach one. So how can haptics help in, in that sort of world? Well, realistically, it's about bridging the gap between academic knowledge and practice. And so across the clinical training spectrum, nursing, dentistry, surgery, there is an incredible emphasis on your physical ability, your manual dexterity and your competence to perform really quite difficult and challenging physical tasks. So these people can be very, very, very intelligent and brainy. They've learned all their stuff, but actually they need to be physically dexterous as well. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. I mean, would you rather have a dentist who has been reading books for five years or drilling teeth for five years? Um, It's I'd rather not have a dentist, <laughs> to be honest. No, no, but I know, I know what you mean. And and I think I think that's some of the interesting things when you, uh, you know, talk to nurses who, who, who haven't got the status of doctors. Actually, some of them have seen everything. I yeah. mean, they literally mm. have seen everything for 20 or 30 years and can tell so much, but, but they don't have that status. Um, and um, I think that's a... You know, that's an interesting thing, isn't it, in the NHS where, you know, nurses, of course, can be male and female and, and doctors, of course, can be male and female as well. But there does seem to be that, that, that difference. And I don't really understand why, because those um, that expertise and experience should be, you know, um, put into place where it's needed and come what may, I think. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and there was that recent case with uh, the surgeon... Uh, who clearly didn't have the experience they were claiming um, led to lots of complications and issues um, and uh, has now sort of uh, been discharged. If you were to use simulation technologies as part of the sort of professional development loop, then you could actually monitor and get real data on how someone's performing over time, whether or not they're just learning or progressing or potentially losing their skills yeah. or they haven't practiced for a long time and actually if you if you're in that profession you want to be good i mean everybody wants to be good at their job so it really helps you to learn doesn't it and look at the things you are good at and the, the things that you know you need a bit of improvement on i mean we all, we all want that well it should give you confidence as well yeah, as yeah. the as the clinician so how does exactly does it work then if you're doing sort of training with haptics how, how, how is, it, is it there already or is this the future it's there already <coughs> for certain kinds of uh, activities so what we can do very, very realistically is we can recreate the forces that are, be, that are occurring on a tool. And so if you imagine most surgical procedures and dental procedures, you aren't directly contacting the, the tissues with your hands. You're holding a tool of some sort. Right, yeah, yeah. And so we use very advanced robotics to uh, basically hold onto one end of the tool the human holds onto the other end of the tool um, and you put a VR headset on typically, not always, but you might have a VR headset on. So you don't see any of the robotics and things. You, you see the tool you, you think you're holding. And if it was the example of dental drilling, you're holding a dental drill. On the other end of the dental drill is a robot. 
you move around, the robot does its absolute best when you're not touching something to be as transparent as possible. So you don't feel like you're contacting anything. And then when you contact something in the virtual world, the robot turns on and pushes back. And so it's just trying to... So you're literally performing an operation, but without a person there. Exactly. Literally. Yeah, yeah. Or and the feel of it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, that's totally incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, the future of that is somewhat up for grabs, isn't it? Because as VR gets more and more realistic and that sort of stuff, you can argue that there comes a point of view where you could say, like, well, is it better than a pig? Is it not better than a pig? You know, how many teeth does that pig have to have for it to be realistic? You is know, it, As in you're using an animal for, for, yeah. for practice, you're saying? I would argue that there's a generational gap, and that's obviously me being highly stereotypical, that would say would rather have someone that practiced on a pig, whereas young people go like, well, maybe, you know, it's pretty, but, pretty but specific. What, but what you do, Alistair, is, is you've got algorithms that compute the behaviour of the tissues, haven't you? Yes, yeah. How, well, uh, taking up Paul's point, how do you know that they're right? <laughs> <laughs> we you know, and, and would react, <coughs> you know, uh, absolutely. How many pigs have you tested? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would would react, you know, react absolutely as a, as a physical, you know, human being would react on, under the knife. Um, we tend to work with experts as closely as possible, and so there's pros and cons with that. The the pro obviously is the more experts we have using something. Um, uh, and go through validation tests that we use, then we become more and more confident that what we're uh, recreating is realistic. Mm -hmm. the, the con of that, if you put five experts in a room, you'll get five different five answers. answers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit um, sort of a, of a grey area in terms of how close you are to the real thing, but what matters is learning transfer. And so it's not that we want to get rid of pigs, although... Um, it, as it happens, um, it tends to be more sort of um, uh, sort of rubber mannequins and things. Yeah. But it's, it's not that we want to completely replace that, it's we augment it. And so we're getting closer and closer to closing the gap between practice and reality. And so... Yeah. So, and what you do is you have a, a detailed 3D anatomical model uh, and also information on the clinical procedure. And that's all embedded, you know, in your software. And those things combined allow somebody to literally recreate as closely as you can what that procedure would be on a real person exactly um but it's and then some so we, we have computer systems so so why restrict yourself to making it real mm. um why not add to that so when someone's giving an injection with our uh dental injection software you can peel away the skin you can peel away the muscles you can see where the nerves you're actually trying to get at are in 3d mm -hmm. and so you can start to conceptualize the anatomy internally in a way that you couldn't do with um, a cadaver you couldn't do with a real patient you couldn't do with a rubber mannequin so wait up sorry just so i understand is that a 3d rendering roughly or is that a 3d rendering of that actual patient you mean are we using real patient data so, so yeah as you mean individual patients or a generic yeah, human exactly yeah. so this is a generic human um so it's because uh, that's got to be the future right isn't it? scan yeah. that person be we'll like, get a yeah paul, her veins aren't in that place we'll get a paul armstrong exactly you know, yeah we'll get a paul you got armstrong <laughs> software model of your you body get the guy that was 1.5 times yeah, exactly. <laughs> um yeah so there's there's two routes we're taking towards that so the first one is we want to get a database with as many example humans thin fat young old all sorts of different cases and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff which immediately gives you an advantage over a rubber mannequin which is always a rubber mannequin um, the other approach we're taking to that is we're starting to use patient data in the loop. Mm -hmm. And so within orthopedics, you can get fantastically accurate uh, bone data from scans. It's 
currently very, very hard to get very accurate soft tissues because the scan data is very different to delineate. It's difficult to delineate between the different tissues. But mm -hmm. within certain areas, such as orthopedics, if you're operating on bones, you can get fantastically good uh, 3D imagery to import into the model. And so we're working with universities like UCL on actually putting patient data into the surgical care pathway. I mean, I just don't, I don't even know what to say. It's so clever, do you mm. think, Paul? And, and well, that's why they made the list. I know they made the Tech, tech, 20, tech, 22, tech 22, but I know because they're so clever. But, <laughs> but, it, but, but it is the future, isn't it? Because the, the more we can narrow down those mistakes, in essence, because we're all human beings, mm -hmm. um, the, the more cost-effective it's going to be, the more successful those outcomes are, are going to be. Um, and I do think health, uh, in terms of tech, really is a little bit behind. I think there's some interesting thing going on, but, but uh, quite often the NHS and their procurement processes don't allow these things to get into the mainstream. Yeah. Or they make it more difficult, sorry, for these things to get into the mainstream I, I because they don't fair. fit the normal bill. Yeah. I think uh, the future of that is somewhat um, fork of the road a little bit because you've also got like, uh, doctors are great, fantastic, do a great job, spend a lot of their life learning. Robot can take all of that knowledge in an afternoon and then multiply it out and that sort of stuff. And you get a very interesting future then of where you go and, you know, you might get a needle put in your arm a lot more accurately than a nurse who may have done it for 25 years, but that day was a bit knackered or, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and I think there's different, though, there's different types of surgical procedures. I mean, some some are very, you know, straightforward mm. and you could have an injection, you know, because you've got pain in your knee. Having an injection in a in a, in a sort of tissue that's really important, or you've got a complicated procedure, that's that's a different matter, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, there are robots <coughs> out there now that are more surgically accurate than a surgeon. So that's also a very interesting inflection point where you start to go, "Ooh, okay, now we're looking at some futures where lots of different things could happen." And you don't quite get to the where um, Hollywood have you, you know, go in a pod and it will figure out what's wrong and you'll. Um, be 10 years younger on the way out but nice. um, that would be nice wouldn't it you know, I'm sure they're all working towards <laughs> and it and two stone lighter but uh, <laughs> that would be really good <laughs> we're looking for no um, so yeah so um, but you do get a quite an interesting future of spectrum there and I think um, the stuff that you're doing really makes it uh, clear that there is not a deficiency but there are new technologies on way to getting to where we you know probably will get to um and I think that's really exciting because I, I, we've never had something like that no. before. Dan, have you got any thoughts on this? Is that just a well, we were just discussing them um, before we came in about. Um, you read the book Ready Player One. Mm. Um, there's a, a movie, movie coming, coming out, out of it this year, um, all about jumping into haptic suits and living your life through virtual reality. And it's, um, you know, haptics is a really interesting field for those that are aware about it. Um, but it's going to be incredibly fascinating to see once the general public um, watches Ready Player One later mm. this year, how much more. Um, it comes into the into the public eye. Just getting awareness of it. Yeah. Well, you've got Project Jacquard at the moment, which Google are doing. So they're like putting, um, <laughs> what do you call it, uh, string into things like jackets and that sort of stuff. So uh, the argument is that this could come a lot quicker than, you know, Hollywood obviously is, you know, oh, yeah, let's all suit up and that sort of stuff. No one's wearing latex, you know, suits <laughs> so they can feel stuff. But the argument is a jacket could vibrate and mm. give you a, a more um, different sensation for things than, you know, other things. So mm. quite interesting in that sort of sense. Uh, I do think, though, um, just before we have a break, um, Alistair, I do think public perception is going to play quite a role, though, and what mm. they feel about it and whether they're frightened by it. And, you know, because we, when you do see some new technologies, there's a real backlash in a public sense. And quite often that's because they don't understand it because the media have written about it in a very one dimensional way. So, so I think part of the 
part of the progress will be the understanding of the public on, on how this can be tech for good. Yeah, I think so. Um, from our point of view, as I said, we're not trying to replace any traditional techniques. And so it's one of the areas that's a little bit easier to give comfort just because um, if you are uh, a patient going for an operation, would you rather your surgeon had had all the normal amount of experience or would you rather they had had all the normal amount of experience Plus. and yeah. 100 hours in simulation? Okay, so you've got a global audience. Um, what you got a magic wand as well. How can people help you? Are you looking for funding, PR, what? Well, we're, we're definitely looking for PR. Okay. Um, that's a huge opportunity. What uh, we're interested in pushing is sort of a two-pronged approach. So we're developing the software which goes sort of beneath all of this. And so it would be fantastic to be spinning that up. And so we're looking for any institutions, R&D, companies, industry who want to add the sense of touch or think that adding a sense of touch into something they're doing is very useful because mm -hmm. we can either provide a complete solution using our software or we can just provide the tools that will let other people quickly and easily without needing to know how to program or the technology behind it to add a sense of touch to so VR. So they, they can use that as a platform to do the next thing that they want to do? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you, Alistair. We're going to have a little bit of break now. Um, um, that's Alistair Barrow of Generic Robotics. And if you want to find out all about what they're doing, um, and it is a fascinating area, and we're going to mm. hear a lot more about it, I think, it's genericrobotics.com, spelt exactly as you would expect. Um, so thank you for that, Alistair. We're going to have a little break, and then we're going to speak to Dan. See you in a minute. So you're back at the Tech Talk Show. We've just been listening to Alistair Barrow of Genetic Generic Robotics. Made my head explode. That did, um, Paul. I just like just the, the I just I don't know the what well, I suppose you're ready for uh, AR just, surgeons, aren't you? Well, VR surgeons, rather. just the, the potential of it is is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, very very interesting area. Thanks it's going to up. Um, what do you call it? Um, success rates, isn't it? Which is could never to. be no bad thing. So, got to, it's yeah. got to. So, um, absolutely fascinating. Now, Dan Bladen, sorry, we didn't really <coughs> speak to you at all in the first half of the programme. We were so fascinated by uh, what Alistair was speak talking about. Um, before we, we uh, go into your particular company and what you're doing, tell me about your travels around the world. Where have you been? Mm. Um, quite a number of places now, um, particularly since Chargeify's got going. Um, but before Chargeify, um, my wife and I went travelling from South America around India. Um, and we spent a ton of time going in and out of coffee shops, restaurants, hotels, bars and other public locations looking for that um, that hidden charging point um, so we could recharge and reconnect with friends and family back home. Um, and a new wireless charging was coming. I knew it was a little while away, but knew it was on the on the horizon and uh, figured out that our connectivity problems had been solved. We had 3G and 4G and, and, and Wi-Fi everywhere we went. Our problem was was power, simply simply staying charged so from south america to india um part of our part of our job was staying was staying topped up staying topped up so whereabouts did you go in um in south america and in india we started in brazil and then made our way all the way up um through south and central america around argentina all the way up to um uh to northern california and then um flew around um to australia and then up from australia to um to uh to india and this was just you taking some time out and, and, and just literally, you, you weren't working, you were, you were just really exploring and taking some time out. Yeah, and my wife and I got, uh, got married and then we, um, about 18 months later, we decided, right, we're going to go and have some time, um, just six months together, 
um, living out of a backpack and, and, and traveling around the world, which was a wonderful experience and I uh, would highly recommend it to, um, to anyone to do it. I know if I did that with my husband, we'd have fallen out after a couple of months. <laughs> But you well, just maybe got... you would have formed a beautiful new relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you just married, you're still in love. It's a great thing, isn't it? <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I'm sorry to be uh, yeah. Um, pessimistic now. So, so a real issue for you then was going around, and I know this was a little while ago, uh, a couple of years ago, and and um, just I, I guess you're making decisions about where you're having your coffee or where you're going to bar, just literally based on I, I need to charge up again. Yeah, and I think if that had been a few years, we travelled in 2012, start of 2013. If it had been a few years earlier. Our, our problem would have been connectivity. We would have been looking for Wi-Fi, but our mm. problem was power. And I think if we, you know, the one of the things we look at today is would be Maslow's hierarchy of needs at Chargeify, and we very much believe that power sits at the bottom of that. Without power, you don't get to connectivity. Um, so um, we started this show talking about doing a mic check around what we had for breakfast. Uh, that's the power for your day. <laughs> um, we think that power on, is... you had a Barocca. I had a Barocca, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, but... Um, you know, uh, it does sit at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Without power, nothing happens. So if you can influence how and when people get access to power, we think you've got a great chance to influence the rest of their journey. So, so what we're doing then is taking that away from Wi-Fi, you know, making sure Wi-Fi is available. Because actually, if you've got power, and most of us, you know, can be connected anyway, it's not actually about the Wi-Fi. It's about your battery or being able to plug in somewhere. Yeah, that's right. And if you look at the prevalence of 3G, 4G, soon to be 5G, and also some, quite honestly, some security fears of people in public places now, mm. uh, you are seeing in the Western world a little bit of a drop off in Wi-Fi um, in public places. Um, but what you are seeing now is a huge take up in wireless charging. It's very much becoming tables, uh, table stakes, mm. the, uh, the ability to, to serve wireless charging. Um, so and it's one of the reasons that um, Intel invested in Chargeify as well, one of the early pioneers of Wi-Fi with the Intel Centrino chips 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. um, breaking away for, um, for Wi-Fi to come into to, to mobile devices. Um, they looked at the world, saw that uh, they did a huge amount of research uh, over two years. Uh, four out of the top 10 problems with mobile devices were to do with cables, and so invested heavily behind wireless charging. And um, one of, one of the, the value points around that was that people were dropping off of Wi-Fi in, in, in the Western world in particular. And so mm. how can you get some of that data back in public places um, if people are pu pulling out of Wi-Fi? So, Paul, do you, do you see um, a trend there that Wi-Fi is actually a technology that we're not going to need in the future? And that actually, if you've got 3G, 4G, that, that's, you know, from a personal perspective, not necessarily a business perspective, mm. you know, in an office. But as you travelling around as a person, do you see Wi-Fi as, as being something that will drop off? Um, yes and no. You know, some places are geographically just incompatible or not very good with mm. them. Um, increasingly, we're starting to see uh, a brand describe them as a safe space uh, where they kind of like act as a Faraday cage and they block signal. So I think you've always got extremes on all wayside. But um, the ubiquity of um, wireless charging, I saw, and, you know, new companies, old companies, furniture makers and that sort of stuff are getting into wireless charging mm. and now that apple has kind of said great we're doing it as well now you're starting to see this massive evolution revolution of wireless charging being everywhere i don't think wi-fi is going to go anywhere because as soon as i come into london mm. i actually switch my wi-fi off because it drives me insane mm. you know you've got bt open or whatever yeah. it is and then you go into st pancras station and that's that and i don't want any of those things yeah. you know coming into my phone thanks very much mm. um so so if i am wandering around i tend to turn my wi-fi off because actually 
3D, 4G is, is good enough yeah. for the amount of downloads now that, that you want to do. I think it all depends on what your lifestyle is and what your, um, you know, where you are and what you're there for, <laughs> if that makes sense. If you just want general connectivity all the time, uh, fine, you're probably going to be covered in some way, shape or form. Um, for me, the problem that I've seen with a lot of Wi-Fi that's out there is unreliability, obviously, number one. But the other one is massive overreach with data that they're grabbing. Um, and you see this with like hotels or museums and stuff like that. I will give a shout out to the Tate Modern who are absolutely great with it. It's email and we won't email you. It's kind of like we use it just to sort of see where you are in the museum. So it's much sort of smarter <laughs> use of it. But other people, you know, they want literally like, why do you need to know where I live when I am with you? You don't need to know that unless you're going to send me something or sell my information. And so I think that's caused a lot of um, miscommunication, misunderstanding and fair amount of rage with people who just feel that that's, it's not worth the value add that I get. It's become I can't be bothered the, to spend the time doing it either. Yeah. I'm not going to sit there for two minutes filling out that information just to get Wi-Fi. Well, things. someone said that it actively um, encourages people to use unsafe technology, which is <coughs> keeping all your data in um, unsafe ways so that you automatically add it and that sort of stuff, which is not good if you lose your phone, mm. unlock it and all of that sort of stuff. But it's a value exchange, right? And mm. um, it's all about, you know, when you're in that pinch point, what value are you willing to to exchange and we're actually working with quite a number of wi-fi providers across a whole host of countries now that are choosing to put wireless charging with chargerfy alongside their existing products mm. um so it is adding value to wi-fi and and vice versa we think. so do you think people will will start to uh be worried about about things like wireless charging because of the security issues or is that, is that something completely different from supplying wi-fi it is something completely different um with chargerfy um, you have no security problems, um, no security concerns. Um, we work directly with the brands. We provide them with a, a software development kit that they can put into their own app. So if you're a coffee shop brand, uh, a restaurant brand, hotel brand, you can take Chargeify's SDK and put that into your own application. So, And that's one of the unique things about Chargeify. We're not a hardware company um, like most wireless charging companies. We're a software company that sits on top of, of wireless charging and makes it manageable at scale. Um, monitorable at scale and monetizable at scale. And we've got IP that goes from phones to drones. Um, so if you want to wirelessly charge an electric vehicle or if you want to wirelessly charge a, a drone that lands on top of a building, um, that's what our software's there mm. for to help manage at scale. And that's coming, isn't it? Because Amazon just put out a patent that they were going to do that on moving lorries. Yeah, as well. so lorries, very much so, Lord. tops of buildings, that type, tops of lampposts. Um, so that's where Chargeify's data set gets involved, more around the management and monitoring. And then if we are to engage with a customer, it's through it's through a brand that you'd already recognize as a user. That you've already gone, okay, there's some value exchange there. So you can build on a trust that your brand might have already uh, and you trust them um, that, that they're doing the right thing and they understand the technology. Because I think the thing that we're talking about with Alistair earlier is unfortunately the public don't really understand what's going on. And, and therefore, they do have to make a you know a leap of faith in essence, um, and and you know wireless charging. So say we came in here and we were supplying wireless charging, would somebody right at this point in time know that that's okay? I think so. I think um, as we mentioned at the top, you know, with the iPhone 10, iPhone 8, uh, Samsung for a number of generations now have wireless charging. People are, are expecting that experience. And I think that when it comes down to that flawless experience that you spoke about with Wi-Fi, we believe that software is a way to manage that experience to make sure it's flawless the whole mm. time. 
Um, so, yeah, we, we think it's part of the value exchange. And obviously with um, the Chargeify platform, um, not only do you, you know, supply that to all sorts of brands, and I think you're doing uh, Pret-a-Manger, aren't you, at the moment? Pret- yeah, one of, yeah, one of our great customers. Um, you've also got this sort of self-healing technology. So where these hotspots are, you can actually monitor them remotely for the client. Yeah, yeah. And so this is this has been pretty huge for us, and we're quite unique in, in doing this. When we looked at the wireless charging market um, when, I, when we first started, um, there's two companies that really won Wi-Fi. And so we very much looked at what happened in Wi-Fi. One of them was Meraki that was acquired by Cisco, another one called Aruba that was acquired by um, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. They perfected the management and monitoring of Wi-Fi at scale so that systems integrators and managed service providers could could deploy thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of Wi-Fi networks. And what was unique about that was that these these technologies had this enterprise management layer that could um, heal itself or could have remote management. So if you're deploying wireless networks across a stadium um, in California, but your company's based in Florida, how do you make sure that they have a perfect experience? And so mm-hmm. we built this self-healing algorithm on top of our, our software that we internally we call it Guardian. It acts like an, a guardian angel. So if you've got thousands of wireless charging spots out there, um, the Guardian is proactively looking over them 24-7. If it detects any errors happening on the transmitters, any fluctuations in, in current, that type of thing, um, the, the algorithm will look in our library and try and do a, 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 a fix for a it. Self fix. Yeah, yeah, we call it self-healing end nodes is the IoT um, lexicon. Uh, and that's there. done automatically? It's not your company that, that are overviewing that or looking at it uh, uh, if, if you've got a client? Um, the client looks at that and can manage that themselves? Yeah, so we we mainly provide to systems integrators. We have a few direct clients we work with, like the Atlanta Falcons, for example. Um, but we mainly provide to the telcos and the managed service providers that go out and, and deploy this with, with their customers. Um, so this is a way for these systems integrators to manage their overheads and total costs of ownership. In the US, it's about $1,000 every time you want to send somebody out in a van to fix something mm-hmm. in a public place. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that automatically, not only are you saving money at the top end, you're also increasing your, your service level agreements and uh, performance with with your end clients and do you think then in the future and not, not too distant future that if you're a coffee shop chain or any just an independent actually or you've got a bar or, or anywhere where people are, are sort of congregating you're going to have to have this wireless charging because people are going to expect it absolutely it's starting in luxury and like like a lot of things it's going to it's going to work its way down um so I spend a ton of time in the US, hotels that we're talking to are now calling it table stakes. Um, large coffee chains, it's table stakes. It's not about if we do wireless charging, it's about how we do wireless charging. And there's a number of large coffee chains that have done wireless charging without software management, and they've found that it hasn't been able to scale. And so that's kind of where we've come in and um, and finding a, a solution for these customers to get it to, to scale. I think a lot of it comes down to um, the putting something in something, because there's a psychological element to it of going, mm, do I own it? Did I buy it? Do I trust it? And it comes down to a almost, you know, like I said, a biological thing of like putting things in sometimes isn't great or you know things can happen wrong and that sort of thing so, so what do you mean putting in inside furniture so, or on top of a you know well, whatever it comes to that so the ones that haven't been successful and i cannot remember the name but it's a little round um uh, ring that you then put on the wireless right. um, charger and that sort of stuff and the, but the ring must go into your phone and those for a lot of people go mm, whose ring that. is that mm. i can't see inside it it was all a bit creepy um and it comes down to a sort of question i've got i was like number one about trust you normally 
psychologically trust most things right you, unless it's like fire and you go like it's pretty bad all the time although it can clear deadwood and all that but um psychologically you're like pretty okay with things until they do something wrong to you or it, you've had a negative effect and that's a lot of it when it comes to um technology and i think wi-fi and definitely wireless is one of those things to some people it's like magic and it will always be no, I don't need that and that sort of thing. And other people, like you say, it's very much like, oh, it's cool, I can do that now. And you, it becomes as assumed and that sort of thing. My concern is with this, it becomes another technology that further pushes brands apart. So the ones that can afford it go nuts for it and make it become, you know, a very good reason. Part of their experience. Part of their experience. Yeah. And the other ones are sort of left out. So again, mm. I'm sort of interested in people that are trying to bring those two together and making it a um, viable solution for brands. For everybody. For everyone, yeah. Because yeah. otherwise wireless will become another technology yeah. that screws over emerging nations. You know? Yeah. And we had um, Haley here from Charge It, didn't we, a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked quite a lot about the, the sort of... Um, battery anxiety mm. because we are running our lives through our phones uh, you know and if I haven't got Google Maps I don't know where I'm going <laughs> literally um, you know if, if my phone goes down I can't pay for anything because I don't carry any cash with me anymore mm. um, uh, and you know I don't know whether my train's on time there's all sorts of things happening let alone not being able to text or you know email or phone mm. um, but so there is definitely a public need for this isn't there people get quite anxious if their phones yeah i think nearing the, you know 10 percent. Well, i mean look at it look at it both ways number one we could say oh we're just fostering a, a society of over-reliance on things that can fail and yeah. you go hmm psychologically that might damage us in a while but i think um if it works and it's trustworthy and if we can, you know, focus on renewables and that sort of stuff, then I'm all for it. Um, I'm interested in no price points from you, actually, mm. to say, like, coffee shop, how much? Starbucks chain, how much? Go for it. Well, I always put you right on the spot there. <laughs> yeah, so it's really affordable for um, for both, as you mentioned. Good those, answer. Uh, it's affordable. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a nondescript answer, but yeah, go for it. Go on. How much is the first coffee well, shop? Well, so we don't actually sell it to the end customer, so it's entirely up to the systems integrators for the price that they sell it to their end customers. So sounds like a it, it's not pound. It's go not, on. <laughs> so it's not my place to say what my customers would be selling to their to their end customers. So um, but we look to make the software around twenty five percent of the hardware cost and that's that's built on an annual on an annual basis. Okay, that's definitely so but that, it's definitely <laughs> so is value that, for is money. Is that one million pounds or one thousand pounds or a hundred pounds? Well, it's, 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 it's all about value, right? And yeah, um, but, but just you know there's a physical part figure. So, so it entirely depends upon how many wireless charging spots you're going to be doing. One wireless if, if, charging spot in a cafe in Brixton, go. Well, so you probably wouldn't do that. You'd probably do at least eight per venue. Eight Brixton and you'd, cafe, you'd, you'd go. And you'd probably have it between £150 per, per transmitter, and plus the installation and then the software on top of that. So 150 per bad. wireless charger times eight plus a service charge. Yeah. It's not that bad. That's not that bad, but okay, now tell me about why I wouldn't buy a native union wireless charger for 75 quid and all I've got to pay is the <coughs> electricity on it. And it'll be rubbish. What's a native union? Uh, it's a wireless charging disc that is a wireless charger. Okay, well, it's a, well, it's a similar reason to what you at home. You may have a BT Wi-Fi box, yep. um, but if you go to a, a Starbucks coffee shop, you'll have a Cisco uh, Wi-Fi router. It's all about the enterprise management and, and the enterprise reliability of that solution, mm -hmm. right? So it's very, very different having you at home um, playing computer games online and lots of Netflix versus a, a dozen people doing that in a coffee shop. So that's mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to. Making I like it that reliable. Answer. Yeah, it's good. Um, that's... Um, 
Oh, I would imagine that actually is affordable. Yeah, for most cafes, yeah. If you, if you're I mean, the price of cakes I'm seeing at the moment. Not eating them, but I'm <laughs> seeing them. But yeah. The price of them. Um, Alistair, have you got any thoughts on, on the sort of charging thing? Does it, do you get phone anxiety? I, I think um, well, there's, there's two things that occur to me, really. It's, um, for me personally, there's a threshold of ubiquity. So until I don't have to remember to take a cable and a plug with me, then I'm not that interested. So we instantly know you're an Apple user. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I think the second one really is what does it unlock for me? So the limitations that batteries put on our devices at the moment in terms of size, I mean, three quarters of your mobile device is a battery, mm, yeah. um, but also it limits the capabilities, the performance, what you can do. At what point do you hit that threshold where you actually can scale the battery down because you don't really need a big one. Mm. So what more can your devices do? How, uh, how small can they get, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. And so there, there's a point where you're surprised when you run out of energy. Mm. You're, not, it's not, you're not hunting around for it. It's, oh, how did that happen? Yeah. That's a good point, actually, Paul. If, if this does become ubiquitous, so we're literally walking along a street and actually your phone is getting charged mm. almost. I'm slightly, slightly exaggerating, but you know what I mean? Well, the MIT are doing that through electricity wires, I believe. Mm. So it is technically... But you won't actually then need much of a battery. And a battery could be, you know, one-tenth of what it is at the moment. Because well, it doesn't need to last... Because that great. Because it doesn't need to last a day. It only needs to last an hour or two because actually it's going to be charged. But then wouldn't you just fear of missing that, you know... <laughs> Power cut. Well, we Nothing are, works. <laughs> we are starting to see this in electric vehicles as well. So um, wireless charging is going to be a huge breakthrough for, for electric vehicles. BMW, Mercedes, uh, just to name two of launching vehicles um, this year that charge wirelessly. The BMW 530e already does it. You pull it up over a pad, no need to plug it in. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it's a huge unlocker for autonomy. Um, autonomous vehicles don't have arms to plug themselves in, so they're going to have to charge wirelessly. And the same for delivery drones, industrial drones, mm -hmm. and, and the like. So what we're seeing uh, is actually car makers talking about making their batteries smaller, driving down the cost, um, because wireless charging will be available in parking lots, T-junctions, and yeah. that type of thing over time. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's the same is true for consumer electronics for your, for your mobile device. It's, uh, we see a habit of always be charging and this kind of opportunistic charging happen in public places. So the average charging time in one of our coffee shops is around 27 minutes. The average charging time across the whole network is about 59 minutes. And so we're seeing people time after time, if the opportunity's there in this room, everybody's got their phone down on the table. There's no reason why that shouldn't be shouldn't be charging now so we see this yeah. abc always be charging opportunistic thing going mm. on and do you think the charging time can can be significantly changed because i haven't seen any technology paul i mean i don't know what it was like in um, las vegas a couple of weeks ago that, that can charge your phone in three minutes you know why, why why is that so difficult why can't that happen sort of turbo charging uh me being the physicist that I am, uh, it just doesn't work that way at the moment right. with the materials that we have. Uh, safety as well as a big one, you know, rapidly charging something is obviously mm. sucking power from something to put it in something else, which has to have a little bit of care and attention put to it. Um, but yeah, generally, um, you've also got a very um, small, often thin battery and that sort of stuff. So you have to be very careful with how you do that. Otherwise, it explodes. And that's what um, yeah. but you why get can't, piercing and all of that. As but well. why isn't there more sort of, you know, research and development going on in that area? Because oh, it's 
actually something people are spending millions, oh, really? hundreds of millions okay. on and stuff. Uh, go for it. Yeah, and there's quite a lot. So Qualcomm, for example, are doing quite a lot of quick charging. They're on quick charge 3.0 now. And actually, if you've got the iPhone 10 or the iPhone 8, um, it'll actually charge faster wirelessly now on some of the wireless charging pads than it does with the, the cable and, mm. um, and power adapter that comes in the box. Um, but in terms of fast charging, the best way to think about um, charging your phone is a bit like pouring a glass of um, liquid into another glass. Um, you charge, uh, you fill that, that glass up very, very quickly until it gets to 80%, and then you start um, throttling your hand back slightly so it mm. doesn't overspill. That is a very, very similar analogy for how to look at, at charging itself. So you see phones over the kind of the next 20 minutes or so yeah, with, with quick charging from Qualcomm go mm. to um, go to 80% very, very quickly, and then they'll, they'll taper off. So that's kind of how But I mean, if I go works. to 80% really quickly, I'll be chuffed. I mean, quite often you have to sit there for half an hour, and you've gone from 14 to... 28 oh that's a bad connection but yeah i mean you it comes down to like cables it comes down to lots of different um factors on it but um yeah so, like so you're have saying, you got most some good tips really to me then if i want to charge my phone quickly well, yeah. what should i do well dc current oh, you're asked the expert next year <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah sorry dan so if i want to charge my phone quickly you know what, what am i doing wrong that you, takes so long well first of all you should find a venue with charger fires while it's charging yeah, obviously oh, um, yeah. to no. charge, oh, um, and and you know one of the reasons you want to do that, obviously, is because it's going to be a, a fantastic experience time after time. It's always going to work, which is what we kind of guarantee. Um, <laughs> the tips, Dan. The, um, the tips. The, but if I can't yeah, find one kidding. of yours, what, what, you know, give the, me some tips. The tips on. are, I, I, the easiest thing to do is if, if you've got a USB-C cable, grab, your, um, grab one of your faster chargers for your iPad or perhaps your, your, your MacBook or whatever and plug that USB-C cable into your, into your phone and that, that will be the fastest way to charge it. As opposed to the one they give you in the in the phone box, you know, in the box. Yeah, the so um, so it's all about the the adapter in the wall, mm. um, that that's where the power is is generated is um is given at the right frequency, um, and so you want to make sure that is as beefy as it can be, um, that should also have the intelligence to look at the phone and go, okay, this phone can only take fifteen watts, so it should dial it down, it shouldn't harm it, um, but that's that's the quickest thing to do. So USB C generally is 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 the quickest these days. Mm. Learned something there today. There you go. Well, we're just coming to the end of the programme. Um, Dan Bladen, Chargeify. Now, if you want to know about Chargeify, it's spelt charge without an E on the end. And then iffy, no, iFi. com. <laughs> <laughs> so chargeify.com. Um, and really, this is a business-to-business company, though, isn't it? And it, it's, um, it, you know, it's not a consumer thing. But we're hoping you're going to get more and more into places like Pret and, and some of the other places that you're at so that we can all wandering and get our mm-hmm. phones charged so can you hurry up and get on with that Dad? we're on it <laughs> that's really good thank you very much um and thanks again to um alistair in terms of all that stuff about haptics mm, again just really um very very interesting um and that's generic robotics.com future of us being fit and well later on Yay. as i get older i'm going to need some of these operations aren't i probably as you get older soon yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. It's not very nice, actually, is it? But, My um, knee's busted, so I'm like waiting for someone to give me a new knee virtually or something. Well, anyway. see, you'll see that you might get some robot operating on your knee. Uh, all for it. Yeah, all be good, for wouldn't it? it? Be good. That'd be good. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not techist against robots. No, I'm equal not. opportunities. Yeah, I'm not either. Um, so uh, you've been listening to the Tech Talk Show. Uh, we're syndicated to dozens of radio stations across the UK and further afield. Um, I'd like to say thank you to my fellow presenter, Paul Armstrong, author of Disruptic, Disruptive Technologies. Anything that people should be looking out for in your world at the moment? 
Um, some interesting um, nuggets coming from Airbnb moving into new uh, interesting industries and markets, mm-hmm. which will be coming out in the next few months. So, mm-hmm. so look out for that. And um, if you want to recommend any future guests, someone doing something groundbreaking in the tech sector, get in touch with us via Twitter on at Tech Talk Show UK, or you can listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts on techtalkshow.co.uk. Um, thanks again to my guests and have a good week. Bye.